Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mimosa. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a Bloody Mary, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the events surrounding the Boston bombing that occurred during the 117th Boston Marathon on April 15, 2013. The Boston Marathon is an annual run organized by the Boston Athletic Commission and is part of the World Marathon Majors that are hosted in six cities. The 2013 race started just like the others with over 23,000 participants. Four hours into the marathon and two hours after the winners had finished, two explosions occurred at the finish line. Though the winners had finished the race, there were still over 5,000 racers who had not finished. We're now going to go through the timeline of the attacks. At 2.49 p.m., two bombs exploded within 8 to 12 seconds of each other and about 50 to 100 yards apart. Runners continued to cross the finish line until 2.57 p.m. Rescue workers who were on site for the race started to provide emergency support and additional units were called in for assistance. Police, following emergency plans, diverted all remaining runners to Boston Common and Kenmore Square. The nearby Lenox Hotel and other buildings surrounding the scene were evacuated. Boston Police Commissioner Edward F. Davis recommended that people stay off of the streets. The airspace over Boston was restricted and departures halted from Boston's Logan International Airport. The Boston Police Department also set up a call helpline for people concerned about relatives or acquaintances and a line for people to provide information. Google Person Finder activated their disaster service under Boston Marathon Explosions to log known information about missing people as a publicly viewable file. In total, there were over 260 people injured. At least 14 people required amputations, with some suffering traumatic amputations as a direct result of the blast. Martin Richard, age 8, Crystal Campbell, age 29, and Lindsay Liu, age 23, were killed in the attack. At 6.10 p.m., then-President Barack Obama spoke to reporters at the White House stating, quote, we will find out who did this. We'll find out why they did this. Any responsible individuals, any responsible groups will feel the full weight of justice, end quote. The following day, April 16, 2013, President Obama spoke at the White House again and described the bombings as an act of terrorism. The Federal Bureau of Investigation led the investigation, assisted by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosions, the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. Officials confirmed that there was only two bombs, despite earlier reports that other unexploded devices had been found. On April 17, 2013, a federal law enforcement official told CNN that the lid to a pressure cooker thought to have been used in the bombing had been found on a rooftop at the scene. On April 18, 2013, attorney Kenneth Feinberg, an expert on victim compensation, was announced as the administrator of the One Boston Fund, a fund to assist individuals affected by the attacks. At a press conference, the FBI released pictures of the suspects they were seeking in connection with the bombings. The suspects were later identified as brothers 
Tamalyn Sarnayev, 26, and Jahar Sarnayev, 19. They are of Chechen origin and legally immigrated to the United States. The father of the two suspects claimed that the FBI had been watching his family. He stated that they visited his son's home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, five times, most recently in 2011, as, quote, preventative work, afraid there might have been some explosions on the streets of Boston, end quote. Around 7.40 p.m., a few hours after the photos were released, Massachusetts Institute of Technology police officer Sean Collier was shot and killed on campus in an ambush. The Zarnayev brothers then carjacked a Mercedes-Benz M-Class SUV in Cambridge. They transferred objects to the Mercedes-Benz and one brother followed it in their Civic, for which an all-points bulletin was issued. Tamerlan took the owner, Danny Meng, hostage and told him that he was responsible for the Boston bombing and for killing a police officer. The Zarnayev brothers forced Meng to use his ATM cards to obtain $800 in cash. The Zarnayev brothers then drove to a Shell gas station to fill up for a long ride to Times Square, New York City, with the goal to set off more explosives. While Jahar went inside to pay for junk food, Meng, fearing that the suspects would harm him during the log drive, escaped from the Mercedes and ran across the street to the mobile gas station and asked the clerk to call 911. His cell phone remained in the vehicle, which allowed the police to focus their search to Watertown. Shortly after midnight on April 19th, Watertown police officer Joseph Reynolds identified the brothers in the Honda and the stolen Mercedes after overhearing radio traffic that the vehicle was sighted. Reynolds followed the vehicle while waiting for additional units to perform a high-risk traffic stop. Tamerlan Zarnayev stepped out of the Mercedes and immediately opened fire on Officer Reynolds and Sergeant John McClellan, who both returned fire and requested emergency assistance over their radios. A violent gun battle ensued between Zarnayev, the aforementioned officers, and subsequent additional police responding. An estimated 200 to 300 rounds of ammunition were fired, 56 of which were later determined to have been fired from the suspects, and at least one pressure cooker bomb and several quote-unquote crude grenades were thrown. Boston Police Department officer Dennis Simmons was injured by a hand grenade and died on April 10, 2014. Tamerlan was wounded and later died at Beth Israel Hospital. He had bullet wounds and injuries from an explosion, according to the officials. Jahar Zarnayev remained at large. This started a massive manhunt for Jahar. A 20-block area of Watertown was cordoned off and residents were told not to leave their homes or answer the door as officers secured the area in tactical gear. Helicopters circled the area and SWAT teams and armored vehicles moved through in formation, with officers going door to door. The entire public transit network and most Boston taxi services were suspended, as was Amtrak service to and from Boston. Universities, schools, many businesses, and other facilities were closed as thousands of law enforcement personnel participated in the door-to-door manhunt in Watertown. Others followed up on other leads, including searching the house that the brothers shared in Cambridge, where seven improvised explosive devices were found. The brother's father spoke from his home in Dagestan, encouraging Jahar to, quote, give up. You have a bright future ahead of you. Come home to Russia. He continued, if they killed him, then all hell would break loose. On the evening of April 19th, two hours after the shelter-in-place order had been lifted, David Henneberry, a Watertown resident outside the search area, noticed that the tarp was loose on his parked boat. Investigating, he saw a body lying inside the boat in a pool of blood. He contacted the authorities who surrounded the boat. 
a police helicopter verified movement through a thermal imaging device. The figure inside started poking at the tarp, prompting police to shoot at the boat. According to Police Commissioner Ed Davis and Watertown Police Chief DeVoe, Jahar Zarnayev was shooting at police from inside the boat, quote, exchanging fire for an hour, end quote. Jahar Zarnayev was arrested at 8.42 p.m. and taken to Beth Israel Medical Center, where he was listed in critical condition with gunshot wounds to the head, neck, legs, and hand. On April 22, 2013, formal criminal charges were brought against Zarnayev in the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts during a bedside hearing while he was still hospitalized. He was charged with the use of a weapon of mass destruction and with malicious destruction of property resulting in death. Zernayev was judged to be awake, mentally confident, and lucid, and he responded to most questions by nodding. On July 10, 2013, Zernayev pleaded not guilty to 30 charges in his first public court appearance, including a murder charge for MIT police officer Sean Collier. On October 2nd, Sarnaya's attorney asked the court to lift the Special Administrative Measures, or SAMs, imposed by Attorney General Holder in August, saying that the measures had left Sarnayev unduly isolated from communication with his family and lawyers and that no evidence suggested that he posed a future threat. The trial began on March 4th with Assistant U.S. Attorney William Weinrip describing the bombing and painting Jahar as, quote, a soldier in a holy war against Americans, end quote, whose motives was, quote unquote, reaching paradise. He called the brothers equal participants. Defense attorney Judy Clark admitted that Jahar Sarnayev had placed a second bomb and was present at the murder of Sean Collier, the hijacking of Mr. Ming, and the Watertown shootout but she emphasized the influence that his older brother had on him, portraying him as a follower. Zernayev was found guilty on all 30 counts on April 8th. He was sentenced to death on June 24th after apologizing to the victim. On July 30th, 2020, Zernayev's death sentence was reversed by the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, which found that during jury selection, the district court did not properly screen prospective juries on how much they had heard of the case. The First Circuit vacated the death sentence and three of the other 30 convictions against Zernayev and ordered a new penalty phase jury trial with fresh jurors, leaving the decision of a new change of venue to the district court. Zernayev's remaining convictions still carried multiple licenses, assuring that he would remain in prison regardless of the result of the new trial. The United States government appealed this ruling to the United States Supreme Court, and this is where the case stands now, but one question that is always asked is why. Why would someone perpetrate a crime like this? According to FBI investigators, the brothers were motivated by Islamic beliefs, but were, quote, not connected to any known terrorist groups, end quote. Instead, learning to build explosive weapons from an online magazine published by Al-Qaeda affiliates in Yemen. Zahar said he and his brother wanted to defend Islam from the United States, accusing the United States of conducting the Iraq War and war in Afghanistan against Muslims. A CBS report revealed that Jahar had scrawled a note with a marker on the interior walls of the boat where he was hiding. The note stated that the bombings were, quote, retribution for U.S. military actions in Afghanistan and Iraq, end quote, and called the Boston victims, quote unquote, collateral damage. 
He continued, quote, in the same way innocent victims have been collateral damage in U.S. wars around the world, end quote. So, Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Boston Marathon bombings? I'll be honest, there was a lot I did not remember about this. It is a major, like, terrorist attack that took place in the country, but I don't know. It's not something that I feel like we hear about still. I had no idea that there was stuff, like, going on as recently as October and March of this year, or that he had a death sentence that was overturned, essentially. Like, another thing I forgot was the carjacking and the officer that had been killed in Cambridge, and that the brothers were on the run for as long as they were. It's obviously a really tragic event that happened. I have family that was in the area at the time. Um, Some lived there, some were just living there for the moment, and it was really scary trying to see if they were all right. One of the things that stands out the most to me is how much photo and video footage there is of the victims and even of the Zarnaya brothers. Like there's that CCTV footage of them in the crowd and it's so eerie and scary to see, I think. It's one of those moments, you know, before all these people's lives were turned upside down. The terrorists stated that one of their primary motivations for this terrorist attack is the United States involvement in foreign countries, specifically Afghanistan and Iraq. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the United States launched two wars with the stated goal of targeting the individuals responsible for 9-11. The first to be targeted was Afghanistan. Immediately after the 9-11 attacks, the United States National Security Council agreed that military action would probably have to be taken against al-Qaeda and the Taliban. However, then-President Bush decided to issue an ultimatum to the Taliban first. President Bush issued this ultimatum to hand over Osama bin Laden, quote, close immediately every terrorist training camp, hand over every terrorist and their supporters, and give the United States full access to terrorist training camps for inspection, end quote. The same day, religious scholars met in Cabal deciding that bin Laden should be surrendered. Mullah Omar decided that, quote, turning over Osama would only be a disgrace for us and for Islamic thought, and belief would be a weakness, end quote, and that the United States would continue making demands after surrendering bin Laden, who he claimed was innocent. The Taliban refused the ultimatum, saying that Osama bin Laden was protected by the traditional Pakistan laws of hospitality. In the weeks following, and at the beginning of the U.S. and NATO invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban demanded evidence of bin Laden's guilt, but subsequently offered to hand over bin Laden to a third country if the U.S. stopped its bombing and provided evidence of bin Laden's guilt. A Bush administration official later stated that their demands were, quote, not subject to negotiation, end quote, and that it was, quote, time for the Taliban to act now, end quote. This goes back to the historic phrase, the United States doesn't negotiate with terrorists. Covert U.S. military action soon began, and the war was officially started on October 7th. 2001. This war spanned four presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joseph Biden. The war on Afghanistan was officially ended by current President Joe Biden, with the official death total, according to Brown University, being 176,000. As of 2021, Brown University estimates that the war in Afghanistan has cost an estimated $2.261 trillion. While the Afghan war was still active, the Iraq war was started. 
After 9-11, the Bush administration national security team actively debated an invasion of Iraq. On the day of the attacks, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld asked his aides for, quote, best info fast, hit Saddam Hussein in the same time, not only Osama bin Laden, end quote. President Bush spoke with Rumsfeld on November 21st and instructed him to conduct a confidential review of the war plan for invading Iraq. The rationale for invading Iraq as a response to 9-11 has been refuted, as there was no cooperation between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. President Bush began laying the public groundwork for an invasion of Iraq in his January 2002 State of the Union address, calling Iraq a member of the axis of evil and saying, quote, The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons, end quote. Bush said this and made many other dire allegations about the threat of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, despite the fact that the Bush administration knew that Iraq had no nuclear weapons and had no information about whether Iraq had biological weapons. Key U.S. allies in NATO, such as the United Kingdom, agreed with the U.S. actions. While France and Germany were critical of plans to invade Iraq, arguing instead for continued diplomacy and weapons inspections. After considerable debate, the UN Security Council adopted a compromise resolution. UN Security Council Resolution 1441, which authorized the resumption of weapons and inspections and promised, quote, serious consequences for non-compliance, end quote. Security Council members, France and Russia, made clear that they did not consider these consequences to include the use of force to overthrow the Iraqi government. In October 2002, the U.S. Congress passed the Iraq Resolution, which authorized the president to, quote-unquote, use any means necessary against Iraq. In March 2003, the United States, the United Kingdom, Poland, Australia, Spain, Denmark, and Italy began preparing for the invasion of Iraq with a host of public relations and military moves. The UK House of Commons held a debate on going to war on March 18, 2003, where the government motion was approved 412 to 149. The first Central Intelligence Agency team entered Iraq on July 10, 2002. At 5.34 a.m. Baghdad time on March 20, 2003, the surprise military invasion of Iraq began. There was no declaration of war by the United States. The last U.S. troops withdrew from Iraq on December 18, 2011. Although the U.S. embassy and consulates continued to maintain a staff of more than 20,000, including U.S. Marine embassy guards and between 4,000 and 5,000 private military contractors. This war spanned two presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. The estimated casualties, according to the Associated Press, is 110,000. In March 2013, the total cost of the Iraq War to date was estimated at $1.7 trillion by the Watson Institute of International Studies at Brown University. Yes, and obviously these two wars were expansive, and there are so many details that we were not able to get into at this time, so we definitely encourage you to use the links below and to use other research outlets to learn more about these two wars. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the war in Afghanistan and the Iraq war? I'll be honest, it's hard for me to still grasp what the point of both wars were. I don't think they really achieved much, or at least they did not really seem to achieve what they set out to do in either war, especially the Iraq war. I know if I was on the Security Council, I would not have really supported the US and the UK in going into Iraq, especially with the no evidence of 
you know, the weapons of mass destruction. The war in Afghanistan, I feel like it especially didn't achieve anything. And if anything, I think it really hurt Afghanistan, especially now that the Taliban has more power than they probably ever did. I think it made the state vulnerable and then therefore the Taliban could take over. Dell mentioned that there's a lot of details that we can't talk about, like the Soviet Union and the U.S.'s involvement in the Middle East during the 1980s that pretty much helped to set up what ended up happening. And I know that there's talk of you know, these wars were just for oil. I guess I will say I understand the intentions of wanting to fight terrorism, but I don't think the uh, execution was good. And I don't even know if the intentions were really as quote unquote pure as I think officials would like people to believe. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that especially the Iraq war was misguided and it was based off of a lie. The Bush administration officials lied to the UN to get them to agree. And while I appreciate how gung-ho the United Kingdom is in supporting us militarily and in our adventures of diplomacy in a lot of cases, I do find it quite striking that they were so quick to also lie to their citizens for a war that we were starting for no good reason. And when it comes to the war in Afghanistan, I definitely understand more so why they wanted to go in. However, I think that it was a losing war. I think that the stated motives of fighting terrorism and trying to bring democracy to that area was misguided. We shouldn't be in the position of trying to change other countries, especially not through military force. I just don't think that that's the right thing to do. We have decided to live in the United States with the United States Constitution and laws, and other people have decided to live in those countries with those laws and those beliefs. And I don't think it's, quite frankly, our business as a nation to try to shove down our ideals on other people. If they're treating their citizens poorly, like in Syria, and they are doing things that degrade humans like the things they do to women and the lgbtq community i definitely think that we should speak up on it and i definitely think that we should increase those citizens ability to immigrate to the united states but why put our soldiers at risk to bring something to a group of people that might not want it we're just setting ourselves up for failure in that case. I think that's really well said, Del. And think of the generations of people that grew up in Iraq and Afghanistan with the U.S. forces in there and a war for their whole life. And I think it's very easy to be in these other countries and not really understand the reality of war. Their schools are getting bombed. Their villages are getting destroyed. We know that military personnel are using violence on civilians and that they don't ever get held accountable for their actions. I agree. I don't think the U.S. should really stick its nose in everything. I don't think war is going to help bring democracy everywhere and it shouldn't be done. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Boston Marathon bombing. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on auto warm beer. As always, stay safe.